0: I'm Molly Moran, and this is the Table Wine Podcast. I am joined, as always, by my lovely co-host, Andy Stoiber.
1: Hello, Molly. How are you doing today?
0: (laughs) I'm so good. We had such a great start to our day, right?
1: We did. Another, not too early, 9 a.m. interview with today's esteemed guest.
0: Yes, which we will get to in a moment. But yeah, my day is going well. How are you?
1: I'm doing very well, actually. Feeling good. Getting used to waking up. Before 9 a.m. Uh, it's a I whole think, okay, world, Andy. It is a whole world. It's... An over- overrated. I still think overrated. but morning, 9 a.m.,
0: sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 9, nine to 10
1: a.m. still a little overrated. No, it's, it's good. But I did want to bring up the fact that I had gone to a little blind wine tasting of party that some classmates and friends had held a couple weeks ago that I think is a very insightful into the world of the average consumer picking out wine because yeah. everyone, it was like 11 bottles that everyone just brought something and then we didn't know. We had a guess.
0: Were you trying to guess the grape or what were you trying to guess?
1: You knew We were given a list of what grapes well, people were all supposed to submit like what grape it was, but the funny thing is that people couldn't find what grape it was okay. on the bottle. So, okay. you know, even that level of like, you can pick out a bottle of wine and then if you're asked to know what grape it is, people, you don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which there's, mm-hmm. you know, levels of introduction and expertise in wine. But it was a great experience because a lot of the things were things I would never have chosen. Of course, there was, like, what, 19 ha- 14 hands. I always forget how many hands. that. Night
0: 14 hands, 19 crimes.
1: There we go. <laughs> <laughs> I think there was a, a 19 crimes. I think there was mm-hmm. one of those had shown up, which I knew. Mm-hmm. Someone did bring Kune Rioja, and that was fantastic. Cool. And a highlight among, I think, you know, mostly grocery store wines that weren't bad, but it was just kind of like a lot. I was like, is this cab or is this some weird blend? And it was a good experience of like so many things I couldn't distinguish because I don't typically go in that direction of like large body, big body, like big red wine. Well, um, and I
0: think with corporate wines like that, it's very hard to tell what they are because they're they're produced in such a way to just be like pleasing. Exactly. Yeah. So the difference between a cab and a Malbec and a Zin and a Red Blend, and whatever, like it's pretty tricky to tell yes. about those kinds of wines, right?
1: Exactly. It was really hard, yeah. and I was like, "Wait, the the color of this is like a Pinot Noir, but this is not a Pinot Noir." It was kind of mind boggling.
0: What would how... you take?
1: I brought two Chardonnays from the shop, okay. the Bernier and yeah. the Carmine, because I wanted. I wasn't mm. sure how the format of the night was going to go, so I was like, "I'll bring them." Something where they can see how Chardonnay can be very different. So that was the goal and people were receptive to it. And we're like, oh, next time we'll have Andy pick out all the bottles. <laughs> yes, that would be
0: good. We're like, Yeah, that is yep, that's how that happens. Because there's yep. good
1: ways to go about learning about wine in ways that are maybe fun but difficult to make educational. <laughs> yeah. But it was a cool experience and I think people should host little wine parties like that, especially as we return to normal Bum, bum, bum.
0: <laughs> Every time you talk to me about these friend things, I get jealous because I'm like, no one ever invites me to wine things.
1: Like, <laughs> it's intimidating to invite you to wine things. I'm just drinking. Drinking
0: with by myself. No, I'm yeah, drinking the, with my husband. It's the fine.
1: plus side is you get to drink what you want to drink. That's it's true. That's you know, true. Al- always good. Um, that is always
0: good. I was gonna bring up something completely unrelated to wine. Right. If you guys aren't listening to the Trojan Horse Affair podcast. Don't turn off my podcast to to listen, (laughs) but the next time you need a podcast. Okay, I listened to the first episode. I was a little like, I don't know about this. And now I I can't handle like how interesting it is and the storytelling and it's fantastic.
1: Good. I love Serial. I had put on the first episode because it kind of big deal in the podcasting world and I had it on in the background and I guess my fault where I was like, but I wasn't that compelled by the first episode. I wasn't paying full attention, but I'm glad to know that it gets better. Yeah. As I would expect.
0: I um, worked out to the first episode. And so then I was like, I was like you. I was like, I don't know if I really followed this. I don't know if it's that interesting. And then I just kept listening. Okay. Because. And then I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. So keep going, everybody. God, Give yes. it, give it all a stuff. listen. I
1: love Serial. If you're not familiar, like, go listen to all of the Serial. At least. I agree. Past Town. The original cereal season
0: is great. Oh my God, it's so good. And now for our aperitif, a little bit of fun knowledge to wet your palate. In season one, I talked about Champagne Day and I claimed that I don't like these wine days, you know, on the calendar where we all have to focus on a specific wine because I think they're marketing ploys. And here I am in season two and I am totally in love with this idea of this particular wine night. So, I'm going to say, "Hey guys, once a season, I'm going to highlight a wine day that I think is fun and maybe worth celebrating." So, at the beginning of the millennium, two writers for the Wall Street Journal came up with this idea for the last Saturday in February to be Open That Bottle Night. It is the night to open up that wine that, you know, you've kind of set aside for a special occasion. And to actually drink it and enjoy it, because so often we set aside these wines and we have them sitting somewhere in a closet or a basement or whatever. And do we ever actually drink them? Mm, Not all of us. So it's a great excuse to open something special or something different, try a new winery, what have you. So Andy and I are actually going to get together and he's going to bring a bottle from his cellar and I'm going to go down and find something in my cellar that I want to drink. And we're just going to drink some really delicious wine together. And I think after this last couple of years, if you feel comfortable getting together with a friend, it feels like the perfect thing to do at the end of February when the nights are still kind of long and it's still kind of cold and we need something fun to look forward to. I think open that bottle night is the perfect thing. So cheers.
1: Now it is time to pop the cork. Can I get it? Yes, there was a very beautiful cork popping sound. Um, I'm trying to be real. Yeah.
0: So, the interview that we have coming up is with uh, Stephen of Von Boden. And we thought it was only appropriate to drink one of the wines that Stephen brings into the US. So, we are drinking a wine from the winery called Enderle and Mall. And the wine is Weissengrau. So, Weissengrau. Weissengrau. I feel the need to say it like that. It is a white wine of two grapes, Weissbergunder. Which is also known as Pinot Blanc and Grau Burgunder, oh. which is also known as Pinot Gris or Pinot Grigio. <laughs> that just I blew Andy's mind. <laughs> didn't know. I didn't know. I had no idea. That is yes. my <laughs> That's great. So, Enderley and Moll, they are a quartet of winemakers in Baden, Germany. And they really are known for their Pinot Noirs. They are making stunning Pinot. It is just absolutely knock your socks off Pinot Noir. But what I find really charming about their story is that like, yeah, they also make white wine because, you know, because they have these vines growing. Mm-hmm. And they've been making this style of wine for a long time. And now it's like the cool style. So this is a skin contact or an orange wine. Mm-hmm. And they've been making it for a very long time because they're red winemakers. And they were like, that's what we know how to do. Like we just crush grapes and we let <laughs> we let them hang out with the The juice and the skin's all together. And then they were like, oh, and now look, everybody wants to have skin contact wine. So they are finding themselves in the middle of a trend, which is kind of cool.
1: Setting the trend. That's very cool. I was going to say, Germany. We did Austria. You know, we've we've talked about Austria. Yeah, Um, this this
0: season is shaping up to be a little more Germanic. Which is
1: (laughs) great, especially when you hear Stephen talking later on in the podcast. You'll want to go to Germany and drink all of the wine. I know I do. And as he says, Riesling is the thing that we always associate with Germany. And you brought up Pinot Noir, which I think I, I'm i familiar with as a great German wine. But I think many people would be like, what, Pinot Noir from Germany? And so, Molly, we have earlier been speaking of how things are changing in the world, maybe because of climate change, but that Germany is becoming a place that has... I don't think we
0: need to say maybe. I think we yeah. need to say definitely. <laughs> <laughs> when I first started drinking wine 20 years ago, if I came across a German Pinot Noir, which was very rare, it was so austere, is the wine word, like so lean. It was very subtle. And I guess there were some that I did like, but others that I was just kind of like, I, it's not, there's just like nothing to this wine. And now over the course of the, these past two decades, as the world gets warmer, these places that were a little too cool for, you know riper grapes like northern italy and parts of germany and parts of austria and now they're getting warmer and so now you're starting to see riper fruit which is to our benefit i guess you know
1: (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah.
0: and we we may devote more time to that conversation in In the future future. yeah we'll see but for Um, now
1: we do have some lovely orange yeah
0: (laughs) in case you don't know that term skin contact or orange wine it's when white wines are made like red wines and so in the case of this wine, these two different white grapes hang out on the skins, are macerating with the skins for a few days. And what ends up happening is it gives it this, like, lovely texture. And Pinot Gris, the Graubergunder part of this, is gr- a gray grape. Mm-hmm. And so this wine, it is actually a little orangish in color. Not all skin contact wines are orange in color, but that is why they are often called orange wines.
1: Yeah, this is a gorgeous looking wine in the glass. It could border on the rosé look, like really pale salmon mm-hmm. color mm-hmm. It almost. It, it mm-hmm. is beautiful, though. But it, it is distinctly orange. Like Yes. It's, yeah. It's mm-hmm. called orange wine for a good reason. Um, oh, but, my God.
0: I just love this wine.
1: Yeah. Okay, I want to first ask, what are you getting on the nose? Because this is a very trademark natural wine nose for me, in my yeah. opinion. But I'm bad so, at describing it.
0: <laughs> so for me with this wine, I there's like a lot of rockiness to it i think on the nose and on the palate and then regardless of vintage even though this wine is very different from vintage to vintage so the 2019 was a a significantly different wine than the 2020 is that we have now Mm -hmm. but regardless i always get like a white mushroom thing on the nose there's always a mushroominess to it that's not like overwhelming but that is just this like little hint of earth on the nose that I brilliant. Get.
1: I would never think of white mushrooms as a smell even. Mm. <laughs> and I mean, many people don't, you know, if they're not dealing with mushrooms a lot, you wouldn't know t- to apply that here. Right. That's but
0: great. then on, I think on the palate, you definitely have some citrus, right?
1: Mm-hmm. It definitely is different in my memory from the last vintage of this I had. Yeah, This, I think, is a little more fruit forward yeah. and more accessible because I think the last time it was more funky, but this still kind of retains I think the truth and core of what it is, but more citrus, really I, I always say buoyant, really nice mouthfeel. Good structure. Yeah. I guess I think yeah. of buoyancy. Yeah, the and... texture
0: is really wonderful.
1: The intangibleness of natural wine to me is the thing that I only get when I'm drinking natural wines and I never know how to say what it is, other than that, like I mean funk, but it's not really fu- it is funk, but it's just like a different a thing that I only get from natural wines. It's really delightful. And it, and here I'm getting it at the end. And it's really fun. Um, yeah,
0: I think the funk word, like, I think it's easy. I don't mean to like mm-hmm. lecture you on this, mm-hmm. but like, <laughs> you know, I do think that it's easy to just kind of say everything falls into this bucket of funk. Yeah. When it's like, mm, there are a lot of other words that work. And one of the things I think in previous vintages of this wine was that it was tangy. And I don't feel like it has that same quality this year. No. Um, but there is a wildness, right? Like, one of the things about, Natural wine is that they're made with the indigenous yeasts. It's very similar to sourdough versus commercial bread. Yes,
1: right. Exactly. And that's what,
0: when I say wild, that's what I mean. This kind of wild yeasty thing on the finish that.
1: Yes, that's right? what it is. Exactly. Yeah. That I associate and maybe improperly with pit, the pith. The Oh, yeah. Right. Pithiness of fruit, of like an orange citrus fruit that. Yeah. Peel, if you've ever bit into a peel, I get some of that in On the end, it's really nice, though, because it's like a nice, it is almost like biting into a fruit and getting all of those flavors where you're getting like really nice round fruit forwardness. And then on the back end, a little bit of the pithy.
0: Yeah. Yesterday, I had a little teeny tiny little mandarin that was not as sweet as I expected it to be. And now that you're saying that, I was like, oh, it's kind of like that experience of eating that orange yesterday where like it is fruity, but it's not ripe.
1: Yeah.
0: It's not as ripe as you kind of expect.
1: Yeah. Oh, this is delightful. And I really yeah. do think it's a stark contrast from the last vintage of it I had because I think this yeah. is really approachable. Like the last one I would have been, the last vintage I had, I think I was like more for wine, like natural wine lovers if they knew they were in a natural wine. This is an easy sell to anybody,
0: I yeah. think. Yeah, I um, agree. And Stephen actually talks about that where he talks about when you're working with producers this small, the vintage really does m- matter more because, you know, a horrible rainstorm at the wrong time of year can really affect you know the yields and the vineyards and all that kind of stuff and he kind of talks through that um and i do find that we're like, thinking about natural wine we have to pay a little bit more attention to vintage we can't just be like oh yeah it's the same you're in and year are out you know to go back to the wines you were talking about at your blind tasting those wines don't have a lot of vintage variants right that's, mm-hmm. they might not even be vintaged whereas these kind of like oh that's the 2020 year look the fruit is a little riper because you know Mm-hmm. That's why I was seeing it happen. And
1: the other thing I'm thinking about is that because it is, I didn't know this was Pinot Blanc and Pinot Gris, because I was just, you know, baffled by the Germanness of the label. And I was like, oh, Weiss and Krab. <laughs> Uh But I think if you are interested in like this journey around natural wine, is starting to think about, okay, what are the grapes that sometimes I think you buy natural wine because they're like, oh, it's a bottle of orange wine. I just want orange wine. But thinking, okay, I like orange wine that is. Pinot Gris and Pinot Blanc versus mm-hmm. soft Blanc orange wines, like that next step of starting to distinguish which natural wines you like and why. Because drinking this, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is definitely a Pinot Gris, Pinot yeah. Blanc blend, like is the round, like a lot of those characteristics of there, but made natural and it's really cool.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I love it. I agree with you that I think that this wine is great for people who are just dipping their toe into the natural wine pool. But also mm-hmm. people who are, you know, swimming yeah. off into the ocean as well can appreciate it. That's what I think is great. And that's true across the board of anything I've tasted from and Mall. They're very, very good at what they're doing. It really, you know, kind of it's unmistakably German. It's notably a small producer. They are not going for hip labels. I just think they're people worth supporting. So Yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. yeah. You'll be all about who you're supporting by the end of this podcast. I think. So enough of us talking about our (laughs) wine drinking and we will dive into a super fascinating interview.
0: Let's decant. Let's uh, get into our subject. Let it breathe. (laughs)
1: Let it breathe.
0: Let it breathe. This interview is with Stephen Bitterolf of von Boden. Stephen is in New York. He is an importer of small producers with a focus on Germany and Austria, though those are not the only countries in his book. And if you're wondering, what does a wine importer do? How does one do that? That's what Stephen's going to tell us. So we will just let him do all the talking.
1: And I would just say go to von Boden.com. If you're interested, it's a great example of a great importer website where you can find tons of information about the wines that he's importing and a great way to learn more.
0: Stephen, tell us, how did you get into the wine industry?
1: As
2: with most people, frankly, it was a non-linear, at least not direct route. I'm in the a, a large camp of like actors, musicians, artists camp who, you know, who found wine uh, through those avenues. So I came to New York uh, to study art history and was going to do kind of contemporary German painting and had everything very mapped out. I'm in general, not a very mapped out person. But at that point in my life, I was, I don't know, a little burst of ambition. I was like, I'm going to go to New York. I knew who the prep professor I wanted to study with. It was all kind of like, it was all laid out in front of me very clearly. And so Mm -hmm. I just did it. I had had an internship at the Art Institute of Chicago. So it was a little delayed. And when I came to New York, it basically worked out well that I could have about 12 months or so just to live in New York before in my head, I was starting graduate school. And then when I moved to New York and set everything up, which was not an easy thing to do, especially when you're broke. And (laughs) so, so I moved to New York, got a job. I had three jobs in my first year in New York. Uh, simultaneously, to try and pay my what at the time seemed like an insane amount of $650 rent. I was like, this is insane. <laughs> and applied for graduate school. And it was, you know, it was eight months into my living in New York, kind of preparing for the transition to graduate school. When I got the response from the the professor that he just wasn't taking graduate students this year. And it was no. just so out of the blue because I'd never once, I just hadn't even considered the possibility that it wouldn't work. It was just sort of like, uh, who, you know, of course this is what I'm going to do. It was all so clear to me that the, wasn't failure because he was like, you know, apply again next year. Maybe I will. And I was like, I'm not sure I can work three more jobs for another year. Yeah. Which I did for another like 10. So
0: that was another year.
2: (laughs) (laughs) But in that time, then, so I was doing art at the same time. I started selling art and I was spending a lot of time alone in the studio. I was doing painting and drawings and it's a very solitary process. And my girlfriend at the time, now my wife was just like, you should get out in the world and like, you're just going a little insane in the studio and you don't like talk to humans. And I was like, okay, like I do that, but I don't like have really any skills. I studied art history. You know, it's like, I've been, a, I've done everything, but I had no obvious career. I could really deliver pizzas very well. Uh, I was a really good barista. I could wait on tables, very proficient at dishwashing. There's like a thousand skills, but no career. And she was like, well, I don't know, you like wine a lot. And I was like, huh, that's interesting. And honestly, when she said that, I was like, my first thing, man, second thing that came into my head was I can buy one at cost. Like I will work in a wine store part-time yes. and I will buy one at cost. And there'll be like a sort of equilibrium in the world. And in fact, in my first few interviews in New York, I mentioned that probably too much and did not get the jobs. <laughs> Cause it's just like <laughs> so what's the employee discount? You know, before they'd even asked like me anything about any wine region, I was like, what is the employee discount again? And how many cases of a week can you buy? <laughs> that. Oh, so that is, that's how I got in the wine business.
0: That's absolutely amazing, Andy. When he came to me, he came from a tech job, so he had like leftover tech money, and so he was like this employee yeah. discount. Like it was just like raining money. Yeah,
2: exactly. <laughs> it's the dream. Yeah, exactly. It's a uh, it's a real oh, the, thing for sure.
0: I think of all of the pieces of the puzzle. Yours might be the I don't know. I think it might be the most complicated or the thing that people don't know the most about. So could you kind of talk us through? What does a wine importer do? Yeah. Ha- like, wh- what is your piece of the puzzle? Yeah, it's,
2: it's, in a way, it's a little bit the most, there's maybe the most, like, curtains in front of it, what's kind of really happening behind the scenes. But on the other hand, it's, to some extent, like the most basic and elemental thing that happens. I mean, very literally at, at 30,000 feet, I bring a wine from Europe into the U.S. and then try to sell it. <laughs> At, at a markup <laughs> and thereby paying for my Cheerios and such. And that is, that's like the most basic. At the deeper level, it, <clears throat> it's a number of things, right? The logistics and the actual gatherings, cases together at an estate and making them into pallets and then moving the pallets to warehouses for consolidation and booking containers and having the containers shipped from Europe to the US and then unloading, blah, blah, blah. That's a huge part of the job just because there's so many people and so many different very specific kind of jobs. And so doing that, not to mention, you know, alcohol is legislated as if it were like a nuclear weapon. If I imported, you know, handguns and grenades, it'd be much easier. But as I do the deadly, (laughs) dangerous wine, it must be wildly legislated. So in legis-post prohibition legislation in the United States is done by states. Right. So you, you can import on a federal level, which allows me to bring wine into the United States as a citizen of this great country. But it doesn't give you any authority to sell anything in any states. That selling part then has to be legislated by every individual state. And so you just get into compliance. Uh-huh. You know, the reason for this is post prohibition. The federal government was like, okay, maybe that was a mistake prohibition, but like hell, if we're going to get back into legislating what every state can do. So they basically pass the buck to the states and we're like, all right, you states decide what, how you're going to do with alcohol. Cause we're just tired of the fucking headaches. So that's the complicated part, right? And it, yeah. it is complicated, and it's also boring and kind of tedious and involves all the bureaucracy you can imagine. At the deeper and more important level, it's it's like being a curator. The gallery analogy is maybe pretty apt, where it's like, listen, there's a lot of art out there, but you only have one room, and you want to put together a show that shows different things, but is over has a theme or is cohesive, it isn't so jarring. And to some extent, I think that's probably the best analogy is, is curating a collection of growers who have, you know, who are different, but have some commonality. There's some perspective that you want to show or that you just believe exists there that you want to communicate to, to an audience. Right. And so that is really, if there is an art or a magic or any kind of skill involved in what I do, and that's maybe debatable, but if there is, uh, that's it, you know? And I think for me, I kind of knew What I wanted to show and I think German wine was so underrepresented in a lot of really important ways that it was perhaps easier than it is for example to go into France or Italy that have just really developed networks and really developed cultures that are well known have been better shown I think in the US right That's when I started it was like you know the world needs another French wine importer like it needs it holds and Ed and I also you know my father was born in Vienna I have a certain cultural connection to the countries. And so it felt very obvious it was also my passion. But that, I think, at the highest level is what the importer does, right? You go mm-hmm. to Europe, you, in my case, you go to Germany and to Austria and a few other places, and you find growers that have a voice that you think adds to the, to the choir that's already in the U.S., right? That adds something.
1: And so say more about that, because it sounds, from my perspective, this, like, glamorous, your life is traveling overseas and going to wineries and drinking and then just sort of, like, throwing your hands there's like, a palette of this and it's just a like a party and everything is just like money flows but it's just great.
2: Yeah, yeah, normally what I do is once I step off my private jet, the limo takes me to a, a like a, a grand estate. I mean, all importers know all the tastings are done on the back of a super yacht. Um it's just, you know, it's you taste for one hour a day and the rest of the time we're basically skydiving, bungee jumping, going to fancy restaurants, hanging out with celebrities. And politicians (laughs) and other world leaders. That's sort of the day-to-day, right?
0: (laughs) (laughs) We knew it. We knew it all along. I pulled back
1: the (laughs) curtain. That is what we do. What is the real... Okay. yeah, yeah. What is it like? You arrive at an estate in the morning and then you just start drinking and you just take tons of notes and you decide, okay, these are the things that I want to bring back. One of the well-trodden narratives,
2: right, is like the wine... On the wine route. I think that's one of the... Like the Kermit Lynch book, right? Which just talks about this... It is in so many ways that a really inspiring where you go, you know, that winemaking is a really intimate thing in a certain way, at least when you're dealing at the scale that I do with small growers and the fact that, you know, for the most part, you are not meeting with like vice presidents of sales in North America. You're meeting with the winemaker and his like children are probably running around or her children are running around and the grandparents are there kind of being, you know, grandparents and they're cooking something and the house is a mess and the dog just went in the bathroom and, you know, it's it's, you're in someone's home. And all the, the peculiarities that come with that. So it's a real sort of intimate thing. And in that way, those sorts of narratives are completely true and really moving. And a lot of the beauty of it. The other reality is like the book I want to write that's sort of like tips to try and like survive wine trips because they are, they are <laughs> brutal. They really are, you know, every time I have to, you know, when I leave, I usually go for about two weeks and it is, I feel like I probably lose a day or two of my life every time I go on these trips because you are just, you're sleep deprived. You're spitting every ounce of alcohol of wine that comes in your mouth. But at the end of the day, you're still pretty like just spacey. Uh, you yep. usually sleep for about six hours. Every time you sit down, people offer you food. It's usually pretty rich. And so there is a certain like r- restraint that you have to have and a certain discipline when you come home. Like I exercise and, and a very healthy amount, I would say, and I'm not in very good shape. It's just to kind of counteract <laughs> the decadence on the other end. You know what I mean? It's, uh, you have to do that. You just, otherwise it really gets to you. So the trip is this, you, I fly out in the evenings always, cause I have family and kids and I need to be here as long as I can. So, and it's also the overnight flight to Europe. I'm jammed in the back of the plane, stuffed behind, you know, stuffed between and behind people. I always order vegetarian on planes. I eat very little meat, but I also just think that like. That was one of my like great tips. If you want to go into importing or if you end up on planes a lot, always order the vegetarian. Like you do not want the chicken dish on a plane. You just don't. It's that is no way that's more than 60% chicken. It's just not possible. Do you know what I mean? Really? So I don't sleep a whole lot on planes. So you wake up with maybe an hour and a half of sleep. It's 8 a.m. You're in Frankfurt. And you're just kind of like, there's a little bolt of adrenaline, right? Cause you're just like, you're okay. It's bright lights. It's morning and your body sort of, even though you really are half asleep and it's the middle of the night, you it's morning. And honestly, yes, usually the first day a noon late morning to noon appointment, then an afternoon appointment and then a dinner appointment. Which is usually like only a few wines. You kind of relax. You're going to sleep there that night. And then you do that tasting in the morning. And that's how it goes. So each sitting, you know, German winemakers. The ones in my book, at least it's all very small grower focus. So, you know, the, most of them have a five to 10 hectares. It's not very large, but German winemakers can have one hectare of land and make 16 different wines. That's like one of their, you know, one of their beauties. I was tasting with someone yesterday who has a Spanish producer that has four hectares and they make one wine. And I was like, <laughs> that is inconceivable for the German winemaker. You would have four <laughs> hectares and you would make. 83 different wines from those four <laughs> hectares <And laughs> you make eight cases of each one but you would have s- right. 63 different wines yep. and so when you sit down and taste yeah i mean i would say most tastings are between 10 and 30 wines i mean it's you know so it is it is a lot yeah and you you either have your notebook or i oftentimes bring a computer you know it's always a balance like if it's a new estate and i don't know them as well And I don't want them to think I'm a total goon, like I'll bring a notebook because it's a little more romantic and a little more, you know, like authentic feeling, a little more of like that Luddite vibe. But if I know them, (laughs) it's just so much easier to type. I can type so much quicker and it's just there. And it's
0: well, and then you can go back and find them. Right. I have this notebook that I'm like flipping through and I'm like, I'm so in the bag by that point. I'm like, (laughs) I don't remember what I liked For sure. Everything was great by that point. Yeah.
2: And then, you know, and then when you're when you're in the weeds like that, a really important thing, and this I learned after a few trips, honestly. Cause you go to these tastings, mm-hmm. you meet with the people. And I think I can only speak to how I work. Right. So I don't know if this is importers in general, but for me, there's a lot of non-wine things that are incredibly important to me. And the first one is the people, right? This is like, we always talk about, you know, we talk about wine, like it's just fermented beverages in a glass and nothing else matters. And like, t- to me, that is incredibly not the point it's out almost all, but the point I do. I think there's a thread between the people and the wine, but for the most part, I'm interested in supporting culture. I'm interested in supporting people. I'm interested in places and I'm interested in the wines because they're an expression of all this, but they are the kind of signal and not the, the it. The really important thing is the vineyard is the people is the culture and the little village that lives around this thing. And that is the thing to nurture and support. So this is completely true that a lot of times it's just, you like someone and you believe in them and you believe in the vision and what they're doing and the community, and that's what you want to support. And I do think, again, there's a connection. Beautiful, honest, people with integrity will, will make wines that have those qualities. But it starts kind of with the people and you sit down and do you like them and do you mm-hmm. you've, you speak a, a kind of a similar language? Do you have a certain a certain chemistry with them, right? Because for me, I see these sort of as marriages. You know, it's like, I want to commit to them. I'm hoping that If my children go into this and their children go into their business, that they're going to be sitting around long after we're both gone. And they're going to be discussing these wines. It is something that you hope I desperately hope. And it's something I talk about and think about a lot that when I'm done with this. That I leave the family and the village and the vineyards in a better place than where I started, and that it was all in all, a beneficial and supportive and spiritually positive thing, right? And so that is that is almost one of the first things you look for.
0: It's lovely. And I wonder, I've struggled with this a bit. I agree with you where for the most part, right, the people that are good souls, they make good wine. Right. But there are those occasions where I'm like, I love those people. But that struggle of trying to see the wine for what it is, for like what the customer who doesn't know that whole story didn't have that charming, romantic afternoon, just trying to find that.
2: Yeah, it's hard. It's hard. And I I have the luxury and I appreciate of getting to know the people and seeing the wines through the perspectives of the context and the people and the vineyards and having that. So, and I, you know, when I was writing the website and all the texts there, just sort of feeling like you're shouting into the, the void, like no one will, Like, you know, if my mother and my children eventually read this, do, you know, you're locked in your room and you're locked in your office in your head and kind of doing these things. And I've been shocked at how many people, yeah, have come to me and have just said, thank you for the writing and for communicating these things that is it's a huge part of the importer gig, right? Well, again, when you get closer right now, like communication is a massively important, especially when you don't have the volumes and you don't have the, the, the incredible brand distribution that you can just be ubiquitous. Right. And I have no interest in that. I don't have the scale. The growers don't have the scale, but it is, it makes it a little tougher, right? Cause you're dealing with smaller allocations and you have to, you have to do frankly the same, if I've imported 6 million cases of wine versus the 30 cases that I probably import. It's still the same amount of work in terms of compliance, price filing, writing up grower profiles, Mm. wine tasting. So it is a lot more work. There is, there is a reason that only like slightly dysfunctional, uh, crazy people get into working with really small growers, right? Because any business person, they'd be like, that is Mm. not a good business model. Like do not do that. Um, so, so that's one of the things, right? Is the people. And the other thing, tasting the wine, this is what I learned after many years is like, you write these notes, you do have a tasting, right? And the, the the issue with each grower, not the issue, but the challenge is to see both the details and the big picture, right? The big picture being the family where the, okay, it's the Mosel and, you know, this vineyard, that it's, that it's something new in, if we're back to our gallery show, right? It's not the same exact painting that I have hanging right Mm -hmm. next door. That said, if I ever had a grower that was like really good and like beautiful and human, I would put two paintings next to each other and that, you know, the same paintings. I'm not, I'm not looking necessarily just to fill skews, but you do have to have that as a consideration. So that big picture, but then also the details of each wine and where does it, you know, having the notes like, okay, you're getting whatever minerals and green apple skin and lemon pith and blah, blah, blah. So that you have a a read on each wine, but also the bigger project of within the context of the Mosel or the faults or the Rheinhessen or whatever you're talking about, where do they fit in? Are they on like the wilder, fruitier side? Are they in the more mineral austere side, like where? where do they want to be or where do the, where are they going in the context of other things happening in that, in that sphere? Right. And the last thing that's most important is writing. If you like the wine or not, that is <laughs> one of the most important things. Cause you, I've gotten home from so many trips and it's three months later and you're reading through the notes and you're just like, it's uh, a shortish borg of citrus fruits. And then you get to the end and you have 20 different wines that all have green apple notes and salt. And you're like, I can't tell if I, re- did I like these wines or did they just, did they just present like a lot of different notes that I was very <laughs> adept at, at tasting? But what was, so, so that reasoning. is always, guess what?
0: End. It tastes like citrus. Yeah, exactly.
2: <laughs> and I would get to the end and be like, did I, did I like those wines? I
1: can't, I can't remember.
2: So that is a really important thing. Making sure to know what speaks for elusive and not um, perhaps as useful as we, we think they are in our hundred point tasting. That we we have to sort of function into some extent.
0: Um I think my head might fall off because I'm nodding so <laughs> vigorously mostly teaching customers to pay attention to importers more and that you can really, you know, like that's you know, I'm doing the curation too, right? i my own gallery owner, but then I'm going
1: and thinking yeah, from other yeah. people's galleries Thank and you. like kind yeah, of find I, I appreciate it. the
0: importers that you trust.
1: And um so we come from both of those worlds. Uh so if you have anything more to say about that, i will be here for it. But just maybe um Yeah, let's, Dig into some natural
2: wine. Should we, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think there had been, it's really interesting, right? So if we talk about the context of Germany specifically, right? It's a country that like, that has the Green Party that is actually a political relevant movement. I remember going over in the 80s and they were composting and it was like, what the composting, right? I mean, from so many in- <clears throat> environmental standpoints, uh, composting an environmental awareness is such a, is prominently more a part of the everyday dialogue and culture of people in Germany and Austria yeah. again these are just my sources, so I know them better uh, than they are in the US so that's one part of the context but the other side was that Germany both Germany and Austria I'd say were a little bit behind the game in terms of coming to the natural wine movement and part of that is at least the culture of what we know is German wine in the US export markets right and this gets a little geekier but the, you know, the short story is that in the post-war period, some of the technologies around sterile filtration, um, allowed, allowed sort of the mass production of sweet wines, right? Where before they were kind of the rarities that a wine fermented got stuck and had residual sugar and they were very treasured and honest. Uh, but they were, they were rare and they were hard to make. They could not be commercially produced in the ways they are in the post-war period and became extraordinarily popular. They were the. The orange wine of the, uh, of the, of the seventies, <laughs> you know, it was like the wine to have you went in. I've talked to a number of importers who started working in the seventies and eighties. And they were like, you, you know, you like founded your import business on German wine. That was the moneymaker. And then like, you know, if you wanted wow. to get geeky and experiment, like, you know, you went into Burgundy or some other places. Cause that was, it was the harder sale. It was just more complicated, right? People didn't have the ubiquitous. It was a mass commercial reality, right? And because of that, there were tons of financiers to do more commercial farming, to really engage in things in inefficiencies less of a concern of quality. Right. And so that was a really big movement. And I think, and as part of that, you know, the, the culture of sweet wines that, that are filtered and only, you know, to me, anytime someone, the zero, zero notion is a, is a really potent one, I'm, I i do not know that that's still the case. I think a lot of people have caught up and that's a great thing, have joined or whatever, right? There's a lot of people doing that. And this point, the truth of the matter is too, I think scale is, for me, scale is the most important thing. So talking about natural wine, or does it's important to me, then whose name is on the label in the vineyard, because they are going to make decisions that are smarter, more in tune with what they need and what the family needs and what the economies of that that particular place need, then just, then a biodynamic winery that has 500 hectares and, you know, a vice president of Mm -hmm. sales is making decisions about being biodynamic because they're seeing a 14.3% growth in biodynamic wines in certain markets and blah, blah, blah. And then they make all these choices about the biodynamic and organic farming that this massive estate is gonna do. And they get into their Maybach and head off to, you know, a huge dinner, right? It's just like, it's. fine doing or doing large scale yeah. organic v five percent nine percent of the time but they're like these vines are 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 my children if they have a cold like i use homeopath cancer i go to the hospital and it's you know part of it is part of it is an economic reality that they have that i don't have and so i think it's unfair for me to sit on my ass in a pretty easy job in a an office that has heating and air conditioning farm when, if they lose 50% of their crop, like, am I willing to lose 50% of my yearly income? Because most people working at the small scale, if they're the ones in the vineyards doing the work, they don't want to spray crap either. It's going to get on their skin and it's going to get on the skin of their children. And it's going to go into the water they drink, right? These are not people that are living outside of the context. They're living in it at a degree. We couldn't even fathom. So to sit on a high horse and kind of judge them for what they may or may not do in the vineyard seems to me unfair. On the other hand. I think it's very fair for importers that have the dialogue with growers and to ask them if they are spraying when and why and how much. And again, then you get lost in the confusion of the gray where it's 99% isn't a hundred, right? It's not zero and it's not one it's 0.008. And that is a complicated, messy fraction that no one wants to deal with. easier to, to go to that binary. So that is where von Boden lives, right? And I think almost most of our growers are working organic. All of them are working in really thoughtful, sustainable ways, but I would be disingenuous if I were to sit here and say that, you know, spring, anything that isn't organically approved is is a priori a bad thing. I don't think that's true. I think it's much more subtle than that. And to me, the only ideology, not of natural wine for me, but of good wine is the scale in the vineyard, making the wine. And then whether they filter or don't filter or you know whatever decisions they make about the both the viticulture in the vineyards and the and the in vinifi- the vinifications in the cellar that's a that's a discussion that depends on the context of where they're making wine right and there's different there's different paths to the same place
0: i've not heard it put in those terms thinking of it in scale before and i think that that is going to stick with me
2: you know talking about really what is importing that is what importing is it's making the decisions based on humans about what is the right or the wrong thing to do. And I don't know that there's an easy right answer in a lot of these cases, but it's but it's one that's based on, yeah, a human relationship and a human view of what families are trying to do, right? These are not these are not companies. These are
0: small estates. I wanna pull on this thread a little bit. We've been talking a lot about trust and kind of the importance in trust. And again, kind of along each of the steps of this process, right? Like you're trusting your winemakers and they're trusting you and then then the trust that you instill in us to sell your wine and et cetera. If you could speak to kind of that level of trust, both directions, I guess, and how you kind of value it, what you think of on that.
2: Yeah, It's it's a really important, incredibly vital question. This was never, frankly, meant to succeed in the way it has. It was never meant to be as big as it is. And it was and it is still not very big. But you know what I mean? I always thought this would kind of be me struggling and that would be good. And I'd be able to Go back to the initial why I got the wine business. Like now, not only do I get wine at retail cost, I buy at seller cellar door. That's a bigger discount. So I could kind of just buy <laughs> wine for myself, and if I can do this, if I could subsidize that by selling a little bit, that'd be great. So the tr- so that so the trust thing was built from there because it was never there was no business plan. There was no there's no story I'm trying to foist on anyone because there's I'm writing it as we go along, right? And the things I'm discovering are we're sort of all discovering it together, and I think. I hope too, that you just, you are who you are. Right. And people, people smell bullshit a mile away. It just is humans. You know, it's like a, probably a part of our evolution and survival. Right. If like someone came up and is like trying to sell you whatever fake, you know, I don't know, Mm -hmm. like fake lion tiger, you know, (laughs) yeah, it's just like, We have evolved to really just have a sense of whether people are telling you the truth or not. And you always, you know, you don't know what the angle is or how the angle or even why, but you're always like, yeah, there's something a little, and I think, I hope at least through the writings and everything else, and even the question about natural wine, like to engage it in a more complicated way and to kind of trust people, right? And perhaps it's a background, it's coming from the German wine context where there's just no, there's no getting around the complexity of it. There's no way to import Mm. wines that are both dry and sweet and off dry and to engage elbling and all the kind of very esoteric things that we get into without addressing the complexity. So from the natural wine standpoint, it also feels you have to engage it. And I think you have to trust people to, to make their own decisions, but also to kind of give them the credit. And so I think feel like communicating that openly is, is more compelling and more honest than than trying to make it an easy, like, this is why I do it. And
1: it just, it, it prints well on a t-shirt and that's kind of it, you know? I really love everything you're saying and you're highlighting how important your role is as an importer, but also for all importers, like thinking about from the wine buyer perspective, like heuristics to understand what sort of wine you're getting and like, you're showing how important it is to pay attention to the importer, I think. I think so,
2: yeah. And I think honestly, that's a a relatively new thing. This is also part of, you know, how do PE, build trust with, with people right at the distributor level. And then at the retail level and the restaurant level where people will kind of turn the bottle around and look at the back label. And I think it almost wasn't an issue until maybe five or 10 years ago. I do think right as we were, you know, things have become just so connected and so ubiquitous in this, this website that I worked on writing, uh, imagining it would really be used by, you know, whatever the two distributors I might have and the three restaurants, that might like be ridiculous enough to buy my wines. It'd be useful. But really it is, at this point being used, we get as many inquiries from end users, so from the people that buy restaurants and retailers, than we do from restaurants and retailers themselves. Probably, yeah, probably two to three times the amount of inquiries. Which means that normal <laughs> people, you know, this is kind of the crazy thing, that normal people, nor, <laughs> normal people, not insane yeah. people <laughs> like us, just you people. normal people, No that, you know what I mean? Like wine lovers are going to importer pages to importer websites and they're reading the context. They're incredibly well-informed, incredibly curious, really knowledgeable about this stuff to a way that, you know, to a level that I don't even think five or 10 years ago really existed. So this, this importer as a kind of curator is probably more and more important because there is more, you can actually live and make a living as a sort of niche person that I am, right? I think of importers that came before had to be more generalists because that was just how the business was, right? For, for economies to make sense, you had to have things that you could sell in a certain amount of markets. And there's nothing extraordinary about like how I'm doing or what I'm doing. It's more, I think what's extraordinary is the rapid change in technology and in consumer awareness and in consumer interest for genuine, authentic, small stories. And that, that I think is a change. So I think a lot of the back label awareness of like what Von Boden is or what Selection Massal is or a lot of the other kind of great small import importers is if they do, we all have, we have niches, we have voices and you can, if you like one, you've, you know, you're not hundred percent going to like the other, but at least there's a thread and that there's an honesty and uh, and a soul there. And I think a lot of it also comes down to scale, right? The same things I can't hold, I can't, I can't hold other people up to uh. To a standard that I don't like seek myself. Right. And so a lot of on bone, the, Mm. so some of the issues we're dealing with is like. Not how to not grow, but how to not grow authentically. Do you know, I just, you can't say yes all the time. You can't say no, it's, it's unreasonable for an importer to say, I want to focus on small scales production. I want to be, you know, I want to be like the indie, the indie band and then go play at massive stadiums it doesn't work on so many of the very important things. And one of my most important metrics. Is we have on the website, like a, you know, contact Von Boden. It's like info at von Boden.com. Right. And it is the thing I think people expect to get like the standard immediate reply back, but we respond to every single one of those. Mm. I hope within 48, 72 hours. And it's usually myself or Colin who works with me or one other person. And that to me is like, that's maybe how you judge a company company in terms of growth. Mm -hmm. If we get to a point where we can't respond to the people emailing us about our inquiries as an actual human responding to their inquiry, maybe we're too big and maybe we don't grow anymore. And we just say no. And we enjoy a good little life and we don't have to be operating in 50 states. We never will. We aren't. And that's okay. Do you know what I mean? Like. Yeah. And again, this is for everyone, right? This is. It's for estates, for wine estates. Meaning, it's for you guys. It's for. It's for all humans. It's like, what do you really want? At a certain point, you know, as the year begins, you meet with restaurants and retailers, and everyone's like, "So, what's next? What's up? Like, what's new?" No, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't, I don't know. We we have absolutely nothing new this year. <laughs> this, this is just, kind of like an awkward silence. I don't know. I mean, if we grow much more, there is much more demand, right? There are a number of states that we that want to work with us that we just can't because we don't have the wine. It's not a, like, we're too cool for school or there's no games in terms of supply and demand that we're really trying to like, oh if we, t- you know, tinker on supply, we'll get pricing up and there's no evil conniving. We're not smart enough for that. It's more just like, I don't know. We don't, we don't have any more wine. And at a certain point, when I look to what my day to day would be like, if we had twice the amount of estates we work with and twice the amount of wine, I would be dealing with spreadsheets and. I'd be in zoom meetings with distributors and with people doing national sales for me all day. And that's not what I want. Like, what do you want your day to be? And then make decisions based on that. And I want my day to be talking to people like you. I want my day to be talking to my growers, talking to my kids. Like I don't actually (laughs) want to work 14 hours a day for the rest of my life. I'd like to see them grow. So that's the, that's the big decision. Right. And I think it's important for us to make. And that sets a tone then for the culture and the size of the company. And same with the estates, right?
0: Like customers are OK when I say like, that's the end of the vintage. And yeah. they're like, great, we'll look for it when it comes back. Right. And then it's exciting when it's back and, you know, they buy it while it's here and then it's gone. And that's OK. That feels more real than
2: than having it just kind of always around. And, you know, it's right. certain vintages are going to be more generous and that's awesome. And if we have a little extra and it lasts longer in inventory, awesome. Other vintages is going to be short. You know, people forget this too, that the realities of small, of small grower production are much more sensitive to the, the vagaries of specific vintage shortages or, or benefits, right? If you're dealing with a huge estate and you lose 10%, like you can buff it out a little bit, but if it's a small estate, you do so. Yeah. To some extent, the economics of the importer are directly woven into the economics of the grower in a way that I think is natural and just, if the grower makes half what they make in a normal vintage. We are gonna sell half as much, and we're gonna make half as much, and that is, I, to be honest, I like the fact that my my household economy is based on the economies and the, and my growers, and so if the growers are working on less this year because that's how the vintage was, then I'm working on less, and we're we're kind of tied together in that way that I think is
1: yeah is just is the word for it. It's right.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So I love that you are <laughs> against the whole nothing's new idea. So maybe. This will be an old favorite that you want to bring up, but what are you drinking? What are you excited to be drinking these days? And maybe it's something that you've been excited to drink for years. And that could be great. Uh, um. Yeah, that's always a hard question because
2: it feels like, you know, all the all the growers or the wineries you represent are sort of your children and like it's hard to pick one one out.
0: It can be less specific if you want. It could be like a region or a grape if, you know, if that's an easier version.
2: Yeah. I think the more general response would yeah, would be that there is. Germany has been incredibly good at marketing itself as the kind of homeland of Riesling, which it is. Right. And so the, the easy narrative for. For Germany has been Germany is Riesling, Riesling is Germany. And it's almost like in the, in the kind of master Psalm world, like you learn Germany and Riesling and then you're done and you can move on. And like, you know, it's almost a way of dismissing Germany in a certain way. Right. It's like, got it. Riesling can be dry off dry and sweet. Good done. (laughs) Now I can go back to studying France. So. Anytime you talk about simplistic terms of anything in, in, involving culture, you can automatically know it's bullshit, right? Culture as in the binary thing, it's never, ever, ever that. There's always a trillion different in-betweens. And so German wine culture is incredibly complex. There's a long red wine tradition. There's a long white wine tradition that's not Riesling, you know, that's Beisburgunder and Grauburgunder and Elbling, which is Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Dornfelder, Portugieser. There are so many brilliant grapes and so many unique little cultures that those are what I'm not, not drinking only, but I'm also trying to embrace more and more because they're just delicious. I think the wine culture of Italy to me is the one that's probably done the greatest job at, at celebrating the uniqueness of all the little DOCs, right? You have Barolo, it's the king of wine, great. But Dolcetto can be perfect at certain moments and so can Vermentino has a really great place you never, never like eat this with a Barolo. It has to be this, right? They, the thousand, you can't step six feet without stepping into a new DOC and each one has its own little personality. And yes, Barolo is the king of wines, but it's also, it has its place. And, and oftentimes the people who are into Italian wines or know it the best almost speak of them all as their special little moments, right? It's not a matter of better or worse. It's a matter of the right context. And I think that's how we have to start thinking about wine cultures in general. Right. Riesling is one of the greatest grapes on the face of the earth. There's no question to this, Mm -hmm. but it's not the answer to everything. Silvaner is a profound grape and can be. So can Dornfelder, which is sort of like a tart, little, a tart, little red wine can be delightful, right? Portuguese can have an amazing soulful herbal quality. All these grapes, they have a place on the table. And I think the 100-point scale has done a massive disservice to wine as a culture, right? We never fathom to go to go full circle and go back into our gallery. And as part of that gallery, to mm-hmm. ask you two to go around and rate each yeah. painting or each work with by 100 points. If I asked that, you would look at me like I was an alien. Appropriately so, because that's a ludicrous question. Yet somehow we feel like that's an appropriate way to talk about wine. And wine is a cultural product in the exact same way art music writing it's the exact same thing and so we have to move to a language that is beyond that because that's that's how one should really address wine and food and the table and people right it's not uh it's not a a zero one or a hundred to zero yeah we're
0: um it's more complex than that boom i think that's yeah boom yeah i think you should
1: (laughs) just (laughs) mic drop now
0: i think there's nothing else that needs (laughs) to get said that was beautiful
1: yeah the point system Again, the art parallel really indicates how absurd a point system is for wine, yeah. Right? And I think thinking about wine in that as a
2: cultural expression and as not the greatest wine, but greatest for what context and for what person and for what moment. That's what you should yes. you should think about, right? Uh, so
0: These are going to be sticking with me, Stephen. Thank no. you. This is great. Thank you. My pleasure. I don't even know what to say. Stephen was just Um, amazing you know I had not met him before and the conversation just started so easily Mm -hmm. and I I think that he explains what he does in a really thoughtful and insightful way and I feel like a more thoughtful wine shop owner after talking with him
1: yeah I really hope we can talk to him again in some capacity yeah
0: Yeah. and there are definitely some things I, I say it in the interview but there are definitely some things that I have already been kind of stewing on and I think I'll be thinking about how to incorporate them into my work more. So it was wonderful. Yeah.
1: yeah. And I think it should raise lots of questions for listeners. And if you have any questions, please let us know. Now it is time to wrap up our nightcap. So, Molly, so, I
0: have indeed. a question
1: ready for you today. I want to know if you were an importer. Oh. What? Region of the world would you want to target as your domain?
0: Oh wow, great Mm -hmm. question! (laughs) Damn, Andy, that's a good one.
1: (laughs) Again, like I love this glamorous life of the importer that's like jet setting across the world. Yeah, when I'm on my yacht,
0: uh, yes, Mm -hmm. when I'm on my yacht and I'm importing wine. So I think Stephen brought up a really great point about there are just so many French wine importers, and so wow, my heart is in France. There's this like, yeah, but does the world need another French wine importer? I I don't know that they do. There are some really wonderful importers. De Maison immediately comes to mind, rare wine company who does focus on Spain as well. And so I'm kind of like, I also have, you know, my heart in Spain a bit. Mm -hmm. So I think I would say Greece.
1: Oh, yeah, that tracks for you.
0: Right. That's like the thing that is personal, like a personal love of mine that I think there could be more attention paid to, that I do believe there have to be more wineries than we're seeing. So in my yacht life, I do focus on the islands. And I'm like, Greece? And then maybe Sicily and Sardinia?
1: That's a perfect response. my Yeah, your love. I feel like we haven't talked enough about your love of Mediterranean, like the ancient wines that... I
0: think I, it will come up later in this season when we talk with the wine shop director, right? Yes. My, pa- my past... Yes. And love of Greek wine might pop up a little bit. What about you? What would you yeah. focus on?
1: Yeah, your answer is so good. And the reality is, I think the notion of importing from anywhere sounds so exciting as like a job mm. where I'd be like, anywhere. But I'm partial to, I love Italian wines, especially, I guess Italian reds, especially, but I just, I mean, I drink more white wine than red wine. So it is a funny choice. But I am biased, I think, toward thinking of Italy, especially. Like what Stephen was saying, there is so many varieties there. I think it would be really cool to just be exploring all the different wineries. And I think that would be a really fun thing to explore. And I, I've never been to Italy. I don't know. I just love food. All of it sounds great to be hanging out in Italy. and But really anywhere. If a wine importer is yeah. listening and wants me, just let me know. <laughs> I, do th-
0: I do think, as Stephen mentioned, it is a lot of logistics. Oh, yeah. It's a lot of spreadsheets, right? It's like a lot of not glamorous stuff. I do think getting that many steps closer to the winemakers is very appealing.
1: When you hear, yeah, when he says, like, you sleep overnight at the winemaker, like, he's talking about, like, these small farms where he's a a guest of honor, it seems, for the night. It seems just really sweet. I like what he's describing as the process. I like your answer more than mine, but that's okay. It makes sense.
0: (laughs) Sorry, you asked the question. I know. I asked have the
1: asked question. And I was like, damn, you had a good answer. What would I say?
0: <laughs> <laughs> but it will be fair that, like, I know there are those wine importers who work with super niche things and they're, it's like super hard to sell, right? So I can say that I would do Greece, but I'd probably do Italy because that's what, how I'd pay my bills. So <laughs> it's fine, yeah. right? It's yeah. fine. We've wrapped up our importer step of the journey. And then next, we will hear from the distributor side of things so that you all understand. Who are those middlemen, and how does wine get from Stephen to you?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Until then, Andy. Chin-chin.
1: The Table Wine Podcast is brought to you by me, Andy Stoiber, and Molly Moran. Special thanks to Craig Ely for his production consultation. If you're enjoying what we're doing here and want to support us, you can do so at com slash podcast. And as always, please review, rate, like, subscribe, and share. Thanks for listening. Hope you tune in
0: again soon.